This episode of Outlines contains discussion of adult themes and listener discretion is advised. Today's case begins as most of my research does, with a spreadsheet. It's one page, six columns and 18 rows, and each row represents a different unsolved murder in the Hertfordshire area. It was released last year by the county police following a freedom of information request. And all around the country, whenever you research crimes, you can find similar requests and similar documents. It might sound a little lacking in glamour as far as murder research goes, but there's something intriguing about the lines of information that police choose to release with these requests. For instance, if you read about today's case, it says, reported missing and has never been found, and gives a place name, Broken Green. A separate letter from the Hertfordshire Constabulary, addressing roughly the same inquiry, has similar information, but it adds, she is believed to have been murdered after informing her husband that she was leaving him. And that's it. That's how it begins. From that point, I can start to research and see if there's enough available information for me to write about. And normally, to start, I find myself trawling the British newspaper archive until I come across something I can use. A headline like, Bloodstain Riddle of a Love-Tangled Teacher, in an issue of the Daily Mirror from July the 1st, 1976. Or a photograph from that same article, which I'll include in the case notes on the Outline's website, and which shows a couple, captioned, Walter and Helen Hooper at a pet traders meeting. Walter is smiling broadly into the camera. He's in his fifties at that point, with large features, wearing a dinner jacket with a bow tie, and standing half a head taller than his wife, Helen, who looks to be in her twenties. She has fashionably styled blonde hair and a jacket and blouse. She looks beautiful, even though she hasn't managed to arrange her face in time for the photograph to be taken, and so she isn't looking into the lens, and her smile doesn't yet quite reach her eyes. There is no sign, though, of what is to come. That within a few years of that photograph being taken, on Valentine's Day of 1976, or perhaps the previous evening, 31-year-old Helen would disappear, her body missing to this day, and that by October of 1976, her husband would be standing before a committal hearing accused of her murder. I'm Jess Carter, and this is The Outlines Podcast. Rosemary Draper was born in Epping, Essex in 1945 to Mother Mary and Father George, and while I cannot find out much information about her life before marriage, I know that sometime in the early 1960s she met and fell in love with pet shop owner Walter Hooper. They married in Hammersmith in 1962, and within the year their first child, Tony, was born followed in quick succession by Geoffrey a year later, and Michael the year after that. Walter already had at least one child, 
20-year-old Roger, by his first wife Lillian, and so he found himself raising a second family with his young wife who was just 17 when they married. For a while, Helen helped out in Walter's pet shop, but by the mid-70s he was suffering badly from back problems and retired, moving the couple and their children to the rural village of Broken Green near Standon, Hertfordshire, where they settled into a small, isolated bungalow. At this point, the boys were all in education, and Helen found herself at work, teaching at nearby Haddam Hall School, where, by 1976, the year she went missing, all three of her sons would attend. It was at Haddam Hall that Helen, now in her late 20s, would not once but twice have her head turned by male colleagues. I was 16, I began a relationship with a man 18 years older than me. We were together for almost three years exactly, finishing when I was 19, and for the most part, the relationship we had was good. But sometimes now, I look back on that time and ask myself how it would have lasted if we'd stayed together. I think of that man and wonder, what could he have seen in me as a 16-year-old girl that would have inspired our relationship to last past my youth? How would he have coped as I grew up and my personality changed and I wanted different things from him and from life? Nowadays I'm in my 30s and I would never entertain the thought of taking a partner so much younger than me. But someone older, now that wouldn't be strange at all. If I made a choice to date an older man now, it would be based on very different things to back then. It wouldn't be to do with his age, but because we had things in common or because we had chemistry and we'd be adults to some degree or another, and we'd need similar things. For Helen and Walter Hooper, who were married when she was 17, perhaps their priorities hadn't grown the same. By the mid-1970s, Tony, their eldest child, had just become a teenager, and Walter had retired. So for the first time in a while, Helen was able to work and to gain a degree of independence from a husband whose son would say at the hearing, threatened to do away with her when in the past she'd tried to leave and take their children. It was in this climate that she tentatively took steps towards an affair. First was John Doyle, a teacher at Haddam Hall, who at Walter's committal hearing told magistrates that his friendship with Helen turned into kisses and cuddles, but that they never had sex. Next was another teacher, Colin Clark, and their relationship became much more serious. In a news article from 1976 entitled Goodnight Kisses of a Love Plot Mum, there is a photograph of Colin. It's a small, black and white image of a man, balding on top, but with hair down to his shoulders and a large beard. He's smiling into the camera and looks older than his 29 years. At the hearing, Colin said, I was attracted to her and it was reciprocated. She came on three separate occasions to my lodgings, and we went out for drinks. When we came back, we had intercourse. Their relationship grew to the point where they made plans to live together, aided by a female teacher at the school who acted as a go-between as the two began to set up house. Helen even told her parents, Mary and George, that she was leaving Walter for Colin, but she had not yet told her husband. This was planned for the night of the 13th of February, 
for it was on the 14th, Valentine's Day, that she was going to leave Walter for good. knows for sure what happened on that February evening in 1976, or the morning of the day after, but there seem to be two versions of the story that we can choose to believe. In the first, a mystery man in a car came to their home on Valentine's morning. Walters quoted as saying, My wife walked out of the bungalow and got into the car. I don't know who the man was, I couldn't see properly, but the car whizzed down the road and I haven't seen Helen since. He adds, I know nothing about Mr. Clark. I just can't understand where she's gone. When their children awoke that morning, Walter told them that their mother had gone out early to go shopping. In his version of events, this was the last time that she was seen. The second story goes something like this. That on the evening of the 13th of February, Helen tucked her children up in bed and then went to tell Walter that she was leaving him for good. This wasn't the first time. Actually, according to her mother, her daughter's relationship was stormy, and on three separate occasions she had already tried to leave. The police surmised, though, that this time was different. She was running off with another man. At Walter's committal hearing, Crown Counsel Evan Stone told magistrates, a jury is entitled to infer that not only is Mrs Hooper dead, but that she was murdered by the defendant. In Mr Stone's version of events, one of Helen's sons awakes in the middle of the night to hear his parents arguing, and sometime after that Walter kills her and disposes of her body somewhere so secure that it's never been found. The next day he awakes and tells their children that Helen has gone shopping. He then doesn't seem worried when she fails to return home, and again, according to Mr Stone... He did not appear to be showing any anxiety about Mrs Hooper. He called in the police only when Helen's worried parents insisted. I can't establish when exactly Walter first called the police. There is a quote from Colin, sometime in the summer of 1976, a couple of months before Walter's hearing, who says, I couldn't understand it when Helen failed to turn up on the morning we were supposed to meet. I am convinced something dreadful has happened. There was a lot of deep feeling between us. If she were alive, I'm sure she would have contacted me. When she didn't show up that morning, I went to the police the following night to report her missing. I told them I was extremely worried for her safety, but they were very slow to do anything about it. Remember, this interview was conducted in June, a full four months after Helen disappeared. But Colin tells the paper... They have only started taking the matter seriously in the last week or so. He talks about the police and how they've grilled him for information concerning his role in the matter. And he ends the interview by saying, If Helen turned up alive and well now, I don't know if I would still set up home with her.
It's Saturday, April the 21st, when Gemma and I drive up to Broken Green to see the area where Helen lived. When I look for the village on a map, I'm surprised to find how small it is. Papers describe the Hooper's bungalow as isolated, and I can see why. The location is just three miles away from where the body of Josephine Bachel, whose case I covered in the last episode, was found two years previous. But despite the sweep of the A120, which rolls past the fields at pace, the area feels remote. Connections between houses are winding lanes, and villages are sparse. Broken Green is one road, no more than ten houses and a signposted farm. I don't know if we missed Helen and Walter's house, or if it just no longer exists, but we couldn't see a single bungalow, just some relatively new and expensive-looking properties, which faced out onto farmland and backed onto more fields. On the day that we visit, it's warm, the first properly warm weekend of the year, and since our last drive to see Berry Green, where Josephine's body was dumped, the countryside has exploded with colour. We bring a picnic and sit about a mile away from Helen's house, and all we can see are sloping fields, copses and farmland, and the occasional van drifting past on the one winding road in our eyesight. In the sunlight, I find it almost impossible to think that perhaps Helen's body is still somewhere in the area, even among the tall grasses and dark woods. But I turn 360 degrees and take everything in, and realise that if you wanted to hide a body, it's the perfect place to do so. Especially during a dark February night, on roads illuminated by only your own headlights. Then I think of Walter, whose bad back put him in hospital while he was awaiting a bail hearing, and how he'd suffered for years with the same affliction, and I wonder, if he did murder her that night, was he physically capable of disposing of a woman at dead weight? Is it possible that despite the circumstances, she really did just get into a car on Valentine's Day and drive off, never to be seen again? According to Colin, there was almost a five-month period between Helen's disappearance and the police taking the case seriously. There was plenty of time to hide a body, and maybe even move it to somewhere safer. Plenty of time if you're physically able to do so. On the 28th of June 1976, nine days after Walter was charged with murder, he told the Daily Mirror, I know the police regard me as their number one suspect. They have been here time and time again, asking questions and making suggestions to me. It has been sheer hell. They tried to suggest I killed her and hid her body away, but it's nonsense. I don't know where she is. I only wish I did. He goes on to say, The police have been through this bungalow from top to bottom with a fine-tooth comb. They have opened every book and every drawer. They have looked between the cracks in the floorboards and dug up the garden. At one time, there must have been 60 policemen in this property. First, we had the uniformed police, who came round and did what I thought was a very thorough search. Then came the detectives, and they went through everything. While they were doing that, one of them said to me, come on, 
If you've hidden the body, tell us where it is and we can help you. I just couldn't believe my ears. I told him that I didn't know where my wife was and that I never raised as much as a finger to her in anger. After Walter's arrest, police searched undergrowth, fields, woods and wells around Broken Green. And they did indeed carry out a thorough search of the bungalow and garden and it was what they collected there at the Hooper's home that was later presented to magistrates. This evidence boiled down to traces of blood matching Helen's on the floor, on a sheath knife and on some of her shoes. There was also the matter of blood found on the path leading up to their house, of which Walter said, I have no idea how the blood got there. And lastly, there was a bank deposit box, which Mr Hooper only opened reluctantly and was discovered to contain jewellery belonging to Helen, including a silver piece she was wearing on the night she disappeared. On Friday the 16th of October, 1976, to the sound of clapping and cheering from the public gallery, Walter Hooper, 63 years old and described in the mirror as elderly, was cleared of murder as magistrates ruled there was no case for him to answer to. After walking free, he spoke to reporter Peter Kane and said, It has all been the most terrible experience of my life. It has split up my family and broken up my home. All I want to do now is try to get my three boys back and pull things together. And by December, he had managed just that, though not without difficulties. The boys found it hard to adjust to living back with their father after his acquittal. And that month, Tony, the eldest, then 14, ran away from home and hitched a series of rides to his grandparents' house. When asked why, he said that there had been an argument after a watch given to him by Helen had become scratched, and he'd been sent to his room for swearing. He then climbed out of a window to call his grandparents, and when he banged on the front door of the house, Walter had refused to let him back inside. Speaking from Mary and George's home in Brentwood, Tony said, I don't want to go back home. I don't want to spend Christmas there. I was mum's favourite and I miss her terribly. I have been very upset living at home since Dad was acquitted of Mum's murder. To all of her family, it was absolutely impossible that Helen would have run away and not contacted her children, even just to send a postcard. They all believed that she had come to harm that night she was last seen, and in the 42 years since she disappeared, there has been no word of her. If she is alive, she'd be 73 now and it's difficult to understand what event may have led to her disappearing and never contacting her children. More plausible is that somewhere in a 24-hour window in 1976, Helen was murdered, and her body dumped in a location so remote that she's never been found. We cannot know who by, although police always left open the possibility that Walter could be charged again, but now he's long dead, and he never was charged. And the only real alternative is that she did meet up with someone that Valentine's Day. Perhaps a man who picked her up early in the morning from outside her little isolated bungalow and drove off down the road and out of sight, taking Helen along with him. 
you've enjoyed this episode, then please feel free to rate the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can find me on Facebook by searching for The Outlines Podcast, and there's a group attached to the page so that you can discuss this or any other case with listeners and, of course, myself. I mentioned last time that I've set up a Patreon for the show at www.patreon.com forward slash The Outlines Podcast, and I'll leave that link below. If you pledge to give money at the $5 or more amount over the next month, you'll be entered into a draw to win a Polaroid photograph taken at Broken Green, as well as receiving the usual tier rewards. This week, I'd like to thank Grace DaCosta for her support. Grace has been a listener since the first episode of the show, and I'm really pleased that she's chosen to help fund my work financially. It's slow going researching and writing these cases. And when it becomes difficult, what keeps me on track is the support I receive. Not just monetary, but comments on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes and all over the internet. I read every one I can, and I love to receive feedback and to know that you're enjoying the show and the cases I choose to cover. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode. But until then, please know how much I appreciate all your support. And thank you for choosing to listen to the Outlines podcast. This podcast was researched, written, performed and produced by Jess Carter. The music was composed by Elias Hardy. 